It is a blessing to be with you folks tonight and uh, to have my wife with me, my wife Debbie, if you haven't had a chance to meet her yet. And uh, just for a few days, we've had my sister-in-law, Barbara, traveling with us as well. And uh, so, yeah, it's been a joy and just a privilege to be here tonight to share the Word of God with you folks and what the Lord's been doing in New Zealand. Uh, we're looking forward to getting back. We're heading back uh, January 28th. We have tickets to return and Lord willing, moving to Queenstown and trying to get set up there and, and see if we can see a new work get planted. We've letterboxed the place twice uh, with information about our Bible Correspondence School. We've gotten some students from that, and they'll be our first port of call when we go there. Hopefully some warm contacts. And so we're just trusting the Lord to open some hearts and, and do the work that we can't do. Let's take our Bibles tonight. Go to Acts chapter 13. If you had some trouble understanding our little cartoon there, we don't want to be guilty of you know, speaking in tongues without an interpreter. Uh, we do have the interpretation on the display board. So if you wonder what they were talking about, you can check that out. Acts chapter 13 is where we're going to be tonight to begin with. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 1, if we could. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. The Bible says, Now there were in the church that it was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. Skip down to verse 13, if you would. It says there in verse 13, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. You know, I think uh, over the years, I'm sure you've heard a few missionaries come through, and everyone loves a success story. When you hear about some fellow, you know, who's been in Africa for 40, 45 years, and he started all these churches and seen all these people saved and has all these national pastors, it's just such a blessing when you hear what the Lord does in situations like that. Or maybe it's a faithfulness story. Uh, Deb and I were in a conference, and we were there with a missionary to Niger, uh, most North Americans don't know where Niger even is, but it is there in the Sahara Desert area. And this fellow had been there for almost 30 years, a Muslim country, and had hardly seen anyone come to Christ, especially the first 20, 22 years, just banging his head against the wall, just putting out the word with no visible results. And then finally, after all that time, began to see a handful of fruit. Those types of stories are really encouraging to us. But the reality is that those stories are getting fewer and fewer, simply because many of the brethren aren't on the field long enough to have a story like that. Many of them are coming home. You know, we're looking here at Acts chapter 13 at the first missionary team ever sent out by a local church in the New Testament that we're aware of. First one recorded for us, Saul, later to be named Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. And they only get a few weeks or months into this first trip and a third of the missionary team up and comes home. We don't know why. The uh, circumstances weren't positive. It leads to a bit of a split among the brethren and some problems. But this is not something that is unheard of today. 
In fact, as we look around, there are fewer and fewer missionaries, it seems, and fewer and fewer of the brethren who are actually making it to the mission field and staying on the mission field. I came across a number of different statistics, and I've tried to verify them as best I could on the Internet, but I've read that 40% of the missionaries who start deputation never finish. The vast majority of missionaries come home after the first three years on the field. In fact, if we were to have 100 people tonight come forward and surrender to missions, that'd be quite a revival, wouldn't it? That'd be awesome. 100 new missionaries. But they need some training. It's only the beginning of a process. They'd spend three or four years in Bible Institute or Bible College. Then they'd get a few years of practical training. And then they'd have to go on, on deputation, raise some funds to get to a field. And finally, they'd make it to a field where they had their first term. And hopefully, they'd come back on their first furlough and report to you folks. And then head back to, a, to the field for a second term as a veteran missionary. Out of that original 100, do you have any idea how, how many make it to a second term as a veteran missionary? Two. Two percent. Why are they coming home? Tonight I want to try to look at what the Bible has to say about this topic and what we can do about it. Let's pray and let's see if we can't get into God's Word. Father, as we come before you tonight, I simply ask that your Holy Spirit would be our guide, our teacher. Lord, clearly there's a, there's a problem. And Lord, if there's something we can do about it, we need to know what that is. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've been in New Zealand, like the preacher said, for almost 27 years now. And during that time, we've seen roughly 30 missionaries come to New Zealand. And we've seen roughly 30 leave. Why? It's a revolving door. I've actually got quite a few reasons here. But tonight, we're only going to look at a few of the top ones. Not in any particular order. But I want to try to be frank with you as to why these things happen. And is there something that we can do about it? And the first reason I want to throw at you pass out tonight for your consideration is that many of the brethren have an unrealistic view of the mission field. You know, as a missionary, I come in here and I show you a presentation, and I want to try to show you what New Zealand's like without grossing you up. I want to show you the fact that there are some challenges, but I don't want to be depressing and cynical either. And in a missionary presentation that you hear from other missionaries, it can be very challenging to show you what a field is really like. I know that a good portion of you have probably been to a third world country. How many have been to a third world country? You know that when you get off the plane, it's not what you see first, it's quite often what you smell first that gets your attention. And it's hard to show and really show in a way that communicates the truth what open sewers are like in a country. I went to Malawi here a couple of years ago in Africa when my daughter was on a missions trip and Man, the wood smoke in that place was just incredible. First thing you smelled and you never got away from it. It's hard to communicate that some of your missionaries tonight are in climates where the degrees are in the 30s, if not 40s, at 100% humidity. No air conditioning, they never get away from it. That's a hard thing to communicate. You know, we might show you the odd Catholic church or idol, but some of your missionaries are in situations tonight where they're completely, totally surrounded by paganism and all of the demonic activity that goes with that. I have a friend right now in Mozambique who has a, a wacko pagan cult type place right next door to him and the pounding, pounding, pounding rock music, 24 hours a day, seven days a week that comes out of that place 
is tough on this fella. He's saying, pray for us, you know? It's just we can never get away from it. It's hard to show people who are naked and covered with open sores. You just can't do that in a presentation. And sometimes as a result, we have a bit of an idealistic view as to what the mission field is like. Uh, go with me back to Acts chapter 12. I don't know why John Mark came off the mission field, but I suspect that this might be the reason. And there's some hints in Scripture. Why he came off the field, we don't know, but it was clearly not a positive experience. And in Acts 12, we have the story of Peter being sprung out of jail by the angel of the Lord. And it says down in verse 11, And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. That verse tells me some things about John Mark. It tells me that he was a Jerusalem boy. He grew up in the big city. He grew up in the town where the temple was up there on the hill, and he could watch and even smell the sacrifices as they burnt on the altar. He saw the priests, the Levites, the scribes walking around town all the time. There were, you know, the trumpets being blown. There were the songs being sung up at the temple. There were the pilgrims in town for, for Pentecost and for Passover and those events. That was his life growing up. And now he's with Saul and Barnabas in some pagan country, some town full of idols, nudity, demon-possessed people, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. That verse tells me that his mother had a house that was large enough where many were gathered together praying. Mom and possibly dad here had some kind of means. He had a house he could live in and was probably fairly comfortable. And now he's sleeping out in the open, under trees, under bridges, who knows where. I don't know what happened, but whatever it was, somewhere in there he said, enough is enough. And he left the mission field and went home. I think he had an unrealistic expectation, an unrealistic ideal of what the field was like. Go with me over to, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 11. Caught me mid-sentence there. 2 Corinthians 11, or 2 Corinthians as we'd say in New Zealand. I know many children and young people are keen to be missionaries, but they don't really know what the mission field is like. I ran into a young lady some time back who had surrendered to the mission field at the age of 12. She'd actually written in her Bible, Africa, and she went through her high school years with the desire to be a missionary to Africa. She went to Bible college, determined she was only going to marry a missionary. In fact, she did. She married a fellow going to Africa, and they actually went on deputation and made it to the field. But it wasn't what she expected. And after the baby got malaria a few times, and after she got malaria a few times, and after some of the realities of the mission field set in, had enough and went home and never went back. An unrealistic expectation of what the field is like. And the Bible is brutally honest. Paul comes right out and tells us what the mission field is like. And this is tonight is what some of your missionaries are going through. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. It's lashes with a whip. In stripes above measure. 
in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Five times I got 39 lashes. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. That's a missionary writing to a local church. We get a missionary letter like that today, we'd say, oh, this guy's being a bit negative. But Paul's telling you what, what he went through. I haven't been through 90% of the things on that list, but I have been through a few of them. And some of the missionaries you support and you pray for tonight are in some of those very situations. What can we do? Well, when missionaries come through, ask the questions that will give you the answers to help you intelligently pray. You know, it's nice to know what they eat, and it's nice to know, you know, some of their customs and things, but find out what they're going through so that you can pray for them specifically in a way that'll help them stay on that field. You know, and I'm all for encouraging kids in missions, but we need to make sure that our young people have a realistic view of what the mission field is like. Take some missions trips. Expose them to some situations on the street where they have a really good idea of, you know, what the devil does out there and what it's like. Uh, with our own children, we homeschooled them all, and we insisted that when they finished homeschool that they all go to a, a third world country for a few months. And each of them made a trip to the mission field, and it changed their lives. It set them up for whatever God wants them to do in life. If it's part of the mission field as part of that equation, they'll at least have a realistic expectation of what they're getting into. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. You know, we don't have to be all negative, but we do want to be realistic. We don't want to gloss it over. Too many brethren simply say, oh, God will take care of it. And then they're not prepared for the realities of what they face. 1 Peter chapter 3, I'll give you a second reason tonight. 1 Peter 3, look with me down at verse 15. The Bible says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be, what? Ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's in you, with meekness and fear. Inadequate preparation. Guys who come to the field, and they weren't ready. And when things began to happen, didn't know what to do, and it bowled some of them over. I have to admit that when I got to the field, I probably fit in this category. Debbie and I went to the field. I was 25 when we went. A young fellow, the missionary that we were going to work with, who had told me, yep, you come work with us for two years before you go off and do your own thing. He quit the field four months before we went. He was just a few months into his second term. So we didn't have somebody to work with. We had actually never made a survey trip to New Zealand. You say, well, that's kind of crazy. Well, finances and other issues at the time made it, so that was the situation. So we got there, and whoa, we were thrown into the deep end. We went off to the city that we'd hoped to eventually go to, 
we were there in 10 days getting into the country and uh, sitting there in this this little house, you know, with our suitcases and looking around saying, what on earth have we done? (laughs) And uh, wow, the devil threw everything but the kitchen sink at us. But God got us through because I was certain that's where he wanted us. But still, I wouldn't recommend it to someone. And your missionaries tonight are spiritual jack-of-all-trades. Your missionaries, the folks on the field, they call him pastor. He has to do everything a pastor does, everything the assistant pastor does. He does the janitorial work. He keeps the accounts. He's the treasurer. He's the song leader. He's the Sunday school teacher. He's the setter-upper and taker-down in the early days. He does all the visitation. And his wife, she has to run all the nurseries and all the Sunday, little Sunday school classes and watch her own children and be a mom. I can remember in the early days, my wife, you know, trying to watch two or three babies and teach two or three or four toddlers and little kids Sunday school. How'd you like to try that one? It's a challenge, but you have some missionaries in that situation tonight. And they're trying to do this in a foreign culture in a language that's not their first language, sometimes with opposition from the government or the other religions in town or the other churches in town. And they're also dealing with uh, the expectations of all the folks back home. And you can see why some of them don't make it. It may be something like culture shock that they're unprepared for. In New Zealand, there's all kinds of strange little things that come under the title of culture shock. You know, we're a a former British Commonwealth country like you folks. We have the Queen as our head of state. But there are all kinds of things I wasn't expecting, things I didn't know. In New Zealand, you walk into a room, the the light switches go the other direction. The hot and cold water taps, they're the other way. Uh, The cars are on the other side of the road. The steering wheel's on the other side of the road. The windscreen wipers and the turn signal indicators are the other way around. Every time you go around the corner, you get the wrong one. Um, When you walk into a Kiwi's house, you always take your shoes off. If you don't, you offend them. And you could lose a chance to share the gospel. When it's time to say goodnight, and you walk to the front door, you open that front door, and you always walk out with them to the car, make sure they get in the car, they pull out, and you wave goodbye. If you just open the door and say goodnight and close the door after them, you've just insulted them. All kinds of strange things we heard those first few years. Mistakes we made that we didn't know. And some of your missionaries are going through even more dramatic things with culture shock. Or maybe it's language. Or maybe it's their knowledge of the Bible that they're not prepared for. You say, knowledge of the Bible? God came from Bible college. He's a missionary. You'd be surprised. We had an ordination here a few, uh, few years ago. One of the new guys who just come into the country, I invited him along, and he sat in on the ordination as we uh, ordained Brother Ben, one of our national pastors, and this fellow didn't ask any questions. And at the end, he said, wow, those are really tough questions. I didn't know the answer to half of those. <laughs> Uh-oh, that's not a good sign, you know. On a regular basis, almost weekly, I run into Catholics and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and Calvinists and Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and atheists and agnostics and skeptics. You name it, we run into it. And the Bible says, be ready always. And sometimes fellows just aren't ready. Or maybe it's the isolation they're not ready for. They come from a church of 50, 60, 80, 100, 
two or three hundred people, and suddenly it's mom and pop and the baby, and one or two people come. And that can be a really difficult thing for some guys to deal with. What can you do? Well, there's actually a number of things you can do in your own church to prepare the next generation if God ever calls them into missions. Something as simple as making sure every young person in this church knows a second language. That can go a million miles towards helping somebody go to a mission field one day. Learning that language is a big obstacle. But if they already know a second language, they know it can be done. And learning the third isn't so difficult. Making sure you young people know how to play a musical instrument. That is invaluable on the mission field. Uh, if somebody comes through as a missionary and they're clearly not ready or prepared, don't kick the can down the road. Get them some help and uh, insist them in being ready for whatever the Lord lays uh, upon them. Run over to Acts 18. Let's look at another one. Acts 18, if you would. I mean, there's no way that you can be prepared for everything. But uh, every week I run into some wild stuff. And, you know, in, in preparing our own young people in New Zealand, we really focused on apologetics, being able to defend your faith, dealing with creation, evolution, atheism, the questions that come up with all that, that type of stuff. Those are the things that help people to, to be able to stand on their own. Uh, this next verse I want you to look at is in Acts 18. Look with me down at verse 24. Acts 18, verse 24. The Bible says, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. The thing I want you to notice here is that there's a team effort in this marriage. Aquila and Priscilla are working together to advance the ministry. And your missionaries that come through are quite often a team, a husband and a wife team. And family issues are one of the biggest reasons why missionaries come off the field. Sometimes it might be the wife. She's just not willing to go to the field in the first place or is very reluctant and kind of goes along with it. And then we meet them in New Zealand and talk to them for five minutes and we go, uh-oh, something's not right here. These people aren't going to last. She doesn't want to be here. A lot of times the wife doesn't learn the language and the culture the same way their husband does. Sometimes it's the children. My children were mostly born on the field, so New Zealand's their home. But when kids go as teenagers, it can be a real challenge to adapt to that culture. Sometimes it's health issues among the family members. Uh, we had a young lady in Vanuatu, the old New Hebrides Islands, for five years. And Kara was there, and malaria two or three times was a key factor in her coming off the field. One of the first Kiwis that got sent out as a missionary there in New Zealand. Uh, the young lady we have in, uh, in Peru, Sister Fern, when she first got there, she uh, Skyped me one night and said, yeah, pastor, you know, I went to the bathroom last night, turned the light on, and the cockroaches just went everywhere. She said, but after you're sitting there for a while, they come back out. I counted 35. How would you like to be in that situation? Some of your missionaries are tonight. And we wonder why health is an issue. 
Again, there's some things we can do. Prevention is a big part of it. The family that, that comes through needs to all be on the same page. If they're not, get them some help. It's not going to get any better on the mission field. And sometimes understanding is really important. If your missionaries need to make extra trips for health reasons, understand they're in situations where their health is being tested maybe in some ways that yours isn't. I'll give you one last one tonight, one last reason. Go with me, if you would, over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And this one's probably the nastiest of the bunch. And that's the spiritual war. The spiritual war. To sum it up, the devil does not want your missionary on the mission field. If there's any way he can knock that fellow or that gal off the field, he will. And the Bible is full of examples of God's men getting knocked out of the race because of the spiritual war. For Elijah, it was depression and discouragement. For Samson, it was lust and immorality. And whatever it is, if the devil can get him out, he will do it. You say, well, you know, Brother Williams, we're in a spiritual war here. And I understand that. You are. And you face the devil and you face temptation. You face problems on a regular basis. But tonight, you've got some advantages that your missionary doesn't have. You have each other. You have a local church. You can get together and pray with some of your friends and, and uh, fellow church members here. Your pastor is only a, a short conversation away. You've got a fellow who loves you and feeds you the word of God. And some of your missionaries are out there with a wife and maybe a few kiddos in complete isolation in a place where the demonic oppression is real. I don't know how to describe it, but when we get off the plane in New Zealand, it's different. You can just feel that there's an oppression there in that country. Half the country is atheist, and it, and it shows when you look around. And when you study the spiritual war, it was Paul the missionary who had more to say about it than anyone else in the Bible. I'm just going to read you one verse. It's another whole sermon, but just one verse to illustrate this. Look at 2 Corinthians 1. And as we read this verse, I want you to remember this is a missionary writing to a local church about his problems on the mission field. 2 Corinthians 1.8 For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. That's a fellow going through some things. There's a pressure, stress, on the Apostle Paul. He says, we were pressed out of measure, more stress than we could humanly endure, above his own strength, to the point where he was despairing, even of his own life. Now, if we got a letter like that from a missionary, we'd think, wow, this guy's got a serious problem. He needs to get off the field. But you know, some of your missionaries go through things, they don't talk about them. Because who are they going to talk to? What are they going to say? They might mention, oh, we've had a few struggles lately. Could you please pray? That might be code for, we're in really, really tough shape. You guys need to get a hold of the throne of God. We're in trouble. And folks, we need to remember that our missionaries are in, tonight are in places where there's a whole different context around them than there is around us tonight. And clearly, the number one thing that comes into play here is prayer. That's what Paul wanted in this passage. He wasn't looking for pity. Look at verse 11. Ye also helping together by prayer for us. 
that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Paul looked at their prayers as a genuine help to the things he was going through. Let me just close tonight by asking you, how do you pray for your missionaries? Is it something that just happens on Wednesday night? Or is it something you're faithful in during the week? When you pray for your missionaries, is it just a general God bless brother so-and-so? Or are you praying specifically for the things that they've asked for, that they need in their lives? If you pray specifically, then God can answer specifically. As I go to churches, I have people say to me, oh, Brother Williams, we've been praying for you. And that's encouraging. But every once in a great while, maybe every 12 or 15 churches, I'll have somebody come up to me and say, Brother Williams, I've been praying for, and they'll mention a specific request that I mentioned in a letter two, three, six months ago. That blows me away. Here's somebody who not only read our letters, but somehow remembered, wrote down, took note of that specific request and has been praying about it and wants to know what happened. That is a true blessing that I, I can't even begin to describe. So many times, Deb and I have looked at each other and said, wow, somebody's praying for us today. And then there's been the odd times we've looked at each other and said, I wonder if anybody's praying today. Folks, I want to challenge you to pray for your missionaries. Keep in communication with them. Let them know, not that you're just thinking about them, but that you're praying for them and holding up the end here. Yes, your support is a blessing. They need that. And general comments about prayer, that's, that's a blessing as well. But let them know you're specifically praying for them. With all the multimedia, or not multimedia, but with all the social media and email and phone and Skype, there's so many ways you can stay in contact and be a blessing. And so tonight I want to challenge you. Stay in contact with your missionaries and pray for them specifically and let them know about it. And let's see what we can do to try to help these brethren and their wives stay on the field. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. I pray it to be something here that would stick in our hearts, Lord, and, and challenge us in this matter of holding up our end of the rope, Lord, and doing what we can to be a blessing as we labor together to try to reach this world for Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, help us not to uh, casually just kind of work over this topic, but Lord, help us to sincerely do our part to help our brethren stay on the field. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.